DiscerningHearts.com presents Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. Deacon Gutierrez studied theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and at the Angelicum in Rome. He holds a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. He has worked for the church in various capacities, including as a teacher and administrator, and is currently on the faculty of the School of Faith. His expertise includes Catholic social teaching, and his writings on the subject have appeared in several national Catholic newspapers and periodicals. He's the author of The Urging of Christ's Love, The Saints, and The Social Teaching of the Catholic Church. Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Omar. Thanks, Chris. Good to be back. In Regnum Novum, we are trying to flesh out for people the importance of that adult faith formation, particularly seeped in the social doctrine of the Catholic Church. And sometimes there is an apprehension of diving in deeper because some feel that, oh, it's so deep and it's so complicated. (laughs) But in in actuality, it's not. It's just it's a conversation that many of us never engaged in. So it seems unfamiliar. Right, and it involves concepts that we perhaps have never been given. We receive our formation through so much more than just our church through our media and through our political class and and through any number of various ways. And because we don't live in a a Catholic culture, really, concepts, approaches to things as fundamental as family and and work are often foreign to us. And because they're foreign and strange, they can be intimidating. But but with the, the beauty of the Catholic faith, and I think one of the things we ought to trust about the Catholic faith is that when the Church puts forward these questions of, of labor and family, they're putting forward what what is true in our soul to, through an understanding of the, what the human person is. They're giving us what we already know instinctively. We just have to be open to hearing it. And so that's that's the kind of the great glory of the social teaching of the Church is that it helps us be more ourselves. And, and uh, because... Uh, We've been hidden from ourselves thanks to the media and the political class and the rest of the culture, cultural changes we've been experiencing as we grow up. In our previous conversations, we have really emphasized the importance of basic, basic principles, the dignity of each human person, the fundamental building block of society being the family. Exactly. And in our discussion on work, we really need to grasp the concept of the difference between the subjective nature and the objective nature. Exactly. Now that may seem, oh my goodness. <laughs> For me, it makes my head swim, but it shouldn't actually. It's actually a very, very clear course. Right, and this comes from John Paul II from 1981 in his wonderful document on, on human work, Laborum Exercens. And so it's, it's 1981, just to contextualize very, very quickly, it's 1981, he's been Pope for about three years um, or less because he wrote it before it came out. And this is the same year, 81-80, that the whole Solidarity Movement in Poland came out. So the first non-governmental union came out in the Gdansk shipyards uh, in, uh, in, in Poland. So it's an amazing time in the church, and he's, he's trying to articulate the church's understanding of, of labor from this personalist philosophical position. And so he talks about the subjective and the objective. And, and what that means is simply this. Uh, we can look at work two ways. 
we can look at work as the work itself. So whether it's pushing a mop or being on a line or intellectual work like grading papers or any of those, so that the work itself is the grading of the paper or the or the the turning of the screw on the line. But then on the other side, there's a subjective notion of work, which is not not the doing itself, but the person who's doing it. The, the work that is made itself because it's the person doing it. Every, you know, anybody who's a manager knows that the kind of work you, you have is dependent upon the person who's doing the work. Even something as simple as turning a screw on the line can be done differently depending on who's doing it. Right? So there's a subjective nature of work as well. What John Paul II wants us to understand, therefore, is that the objective work, the, the work itself, changes, right? It changes from job to job. It changes over time, uh, different fancy screwdrivers, different forms of uh, grading papers, whatever it might be. The work itself changes thanks to technological advances, etc. But the subjective never changes. It's always a person doing the work. It's always connected to somebody. And even that person changes job from job to job, it's always that person doing the work. And so why would he make this? Why is this important? What the Holy Father is trying to get us to understand is that what's the most important thing about labor is not the labor itself, the turning of the screw or the grading of the paper, whatever it might be. It's the person doing it. That's the most important thing. That the, the work always has to point back to the person doing it. Because in our culture, we're so used to, to looking just at the objective. Mm -hmm. In our culture, we have that phrase, right, equal work for equal pay or equal pay for equal work, right? Mm -hmm. That formula looks only at the objective, right? It ignores the subjective. It only This is the work that's being done. It should receive the same pay. But what about the person doing it? That's the real question. Who's doing it? And that should have a factor as we look at questions of wage and just wage and the rest of it. Often we can take a look at examples of how that person is treated in the workplace by others when we use, for example, uh, I keep going back to Charles Dickens. Yes, good. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, in that Christmas Carol, we see the idea of how two managers operate. You mm. have Fizzywig, who is kind and generous and treats his employees with dignity, mm -hmm. even to his own expense. Yes. And then you have Scrooge, who is, by any account, and particularly in the early chapters of the book, cruel mm -hmm. to Bob Cratchit. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are the, it kind of models in our heads. I mean, it, let's just look at them as managers. They're accomplishing work, but it's in how that work is done. Exactly, and it's it's an, and it's the person who's doing the work because the Fezziwig is is engaging with the person. Right? Scrooge is just wants the work done. He has no care for the person, no no commitment to who they are or who their family is. Right? There's a suffering family behind Cratchit, but Scrooge doesn't care because he's not connected with the person, and that's that's what the Holy Father's trying to get get through to us is that the, this labor it, which belongs right not mm -hmm. to us we may have paid a wage for it but it still belongs to the person that that labor is connected to a person who has a family who has a background who has needs who has wants who has desires who has a vocation who's who's loved by god who's a dignity right uh, that's what we need to understand so the holy father and the compendium is going to say in paragraph uh, 272 the compendium says independently of subjective content so no matter what the work is Work must be oriented to the subject who performs it, to the person who does the work. Because the end of work, the end of any work whatsoever, says the compendium, always remains man, the person. And this is the fundamental, that we said this last time, right? That our culture, what it has done to this question of labor, it has made, it's put a price tag on labor, a price tag on work. 
as the work itself can be con- considered apart from the human person. And the church's, the social teaching understanding of labor is that's wrong. Labor has to point back to the person who's doing it, has to take in consideration that person. The end of labor is not profit, right? And it's not to get something done, right? efficiency. The point of labor is to humanize the person doing it. That's the point of labor. It's easier to look at this particular subject from the position of what the manager should be doing in relation to the employee. But it's also important for us to look at it from the vantage point of the employee. Mm. What should we be giving even to the work that we're doing, but also in regards to the employer we're encountering? regardless, believe it or not, of how they are treating us. Exactly. That's an excellent point. So as employees, therefore, we have a habit just to think, this labor is apart from me, they've already paid my wage for it, and I just need to do enough to get by. Some listeners may remember the, the movie Office Space, right, where it's just, I just need to do enough not to get noticed so I don't get a report done on me or, or, mm-hmm. or, or get fired or whatever. That's all I need to do. That's what this notion of labor has done to, to the question of work. It's it's something so odious we need to we need to lie to our employer, and that's the problem. Uh, as employees, we need to understand that because our work is an extension of ourselves, an extension of our of our humanizing and, and, and human selves. Therefore, the 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 character of the work, the the integrity in the work, reflects back on us. There used to be a time, right, when when that the quality of work we did was a reflection on us. Clearly, so. And sadly, we've got more and more away from that. So as employees, we need to understand that this question of the subjectivity of work, of the importance of that, 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 that connection with the person, means that we need to be very careful about how we engage in the work we do, even if we have a bad boss, even if we don't feel we're being paid justly. It's an extension of ourselves. That work is connected to us, regardless of what the price tag might be. Yeah, it's, it's so much easier to say I will do everything because they are so good to me, <laughs> and they they are they treat me with such respect. It, it is very difficult to be in a situation where they don't like me, they don't respect me, they're not treating me well. Mm-hmm. But yet, I still need to do the best I can do anyway. Exactly, exactly, and that's the you know the, the, we recognize and we're talking about from the manager's point of view or the employer's point of view and from the employee's point of view but this is the next point that the companion makes is that human work has an intrinsic social dimension i mean it's it's a symbiotic relationship between the manager and the employee the employee needs to to go forward and put put forward the best work they possibly can but there are going to be situations where because it is it's it's naturally frustrating when you're in a workspace and you don't have a good manager who who either encourages you or gives you a sense that there's purpose to your work, right? Mm-hmm. Or that they appreciate the fact that it's 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 you who's doing it. And it becomes very difficult then to do your best. It doesn't excuse you, but it becomes difficult, which is why you would require, you hope to have a manager who appreciates that and, and, and voices those truths. At the same time, it's difficult for a manager to have an employee who, who has no care for the dignity of their own labor, no care that their labor reflects poorly on them, because they have such a bad understanding of labor. That's why it's so important, too, to have that Catholic spirituality of yeah. uniting everything you do with Christ so that you don't take it quite as personally as this is my work, mm-hmm. but it's work that I do for him Yeah, to good. serve the kingdom. Very good. And ultimately, everything we do, whether it's to clean the house or to make the widget or to sell the product, ultimately, it's for the good we do it for him 
not for us. And that's a different paradigm. It is a totally different paradigm. And what the, you know, recently the, the Vatican, the Pontifical Council of Justice and Peace came up with a document on being a business leader on, on labor and, and things. And one of the points they make is that in the labor relationship that we engage in uh, at the workplace, we are creating an environment that allows for human flourishing, but also contributes to the common good. Uh, I mean, consider the things we're talking about. I, I'm being asked as a, a laborer to put forward my best labor possible. That requires certain virtues, right? a, a virtue of industriousness. It's actually John Paul II names as a virtue in his document on labor. Uh, the virtue of, of showing up on time and honesty and, and, and transparency. These are virtues, and what the workplace does is it provides an environment in, in which I can flourish in virtue. That makes the workplace an extremely important place for human development. So this social dimension of, of work that the compendium talks about means, therefore, that the manager is in charge not much, not just of getting a project done, but of providing an environment for human fulfillment. I mean, that, that's a big task. And the employee, likewise, is being called to, to engage in those virtues. And so if we point, as you were saying, we point this back to Christ, we point this back to our larger transcendent end, right? the true end of human being, which is to know, love, and serve God and be with him forever in heaven, then we, that can transform our labor, the way we manage the, the everyday. I mean, this is where the social doctrine hits, you know, the rubber hits the road, and these are the brass tacks. This affects the way you do your job and hopefully affects the way you're, your, your, your culture at, at, at work can change when you have this communitarian social aspect of labor. We'll return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez in just a moment. This is Dr. Anthony Lillis. And Chris McGregor. And we invite you to join us in a once-in-a-lifetime Discerning Hearts Trinitarian pilgrimage throughout the Holy Land. This will be a unique opportunity for contemplative prayer, spiritual teaching, and fellowship in one of the holiest areas on the earth. The place is touched by the lives of Jesus, Mary, and the Apostles. During this time, we will also walk closely in the company of the prophet Elijah through the most miraculous moments in salvation history, which would later become pages in the Gospel. Along with Sister Magdalene Balduc of the Community of the Beatitudes, the community of the famous Father Jacques Philippe, we hope to lead you into a new encounter with the great mysteries of our faith and a renewal of your devotion to the Lord. Join us May 23rd through June 2nd, 2020. Please visit discerninghearts.com for a full itinerary and learn more about the Discerning Hearts Trinitarian Pilgrimage to the Holy Land. The Memorari Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. If you have been blessed in some way by the spiritual nourishment and teachings offered freely by all those involved with Discerning Hearts programs, please consider a positive review for the various programs on the iTunes and Google Play stores. This is a great way to help the ministry. 
and is an encouragement to others who are seeking the best in spiritual formation to find and check out the programs. Won't you please help? It's an easy way to help give back and to be a part of the mission. Thank you, and God bless from all at Discerning Hearts. We now return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez. Omar, let's talk about, let's just put it right out there, the cutthroat nature <laughs> of yep. that survivor type of alliance <laughs> thing that can occur within the course of those communities at work. Yeah, it happens. Uh, maybe it's because of TV shows like Survivor. Maybe it's because of our culture, this competitive culture. But what happens oftentimes it works, and, and I've experienced this, you've experienced uh-huh. this, a lot of people have experienced this who's listening, is that there's a sense of, are you on my team or not? Uh, um, we have a vision mm-hmm. for what the labor should be, or we have a vision for who should be in charge, or whatever it might be uh, at your particular workplace. But so, some people are on my team, and some people aren't on my team. It's clicky. Um, it's very clicky. It's very high school. It's very mm-hmm. what it is, uh, which is, I don't mean to disparage people in high school, but, but that's what it is. And that's another aspect of this this question of, of detaching labor from the dignity of the human person. That This is another effect of the situation we found ourselves in. There's a, a wonderful scene, and, and you and I, we, we went to go see Les Miserables together. Mm-hmm. You knew I was going there. There's a wonderful scene in that play, in that musical, mm-hmm. uh, where the Fantine is with the other women in the factory, and they're nipping, and they're judging, and they're assuming, and they're gossiping, and they're pick doing... Pick a little, talk a little. They can pick a little, yeah. talk a little, right? Another great musical. So that happens, and it's very common, and, and it causes great suffering in people's lives. That's the kind of thing that happens when we detach the dignity of the human person from the work that's being done. And it's also what happens when we associate our dignity as being totally wrapped up in our labor. So that when somebody criticizes the work we've done, right, instead of mm-hmm. taking that as a as an opportunity to improve, we take it as a personal slight against ourselves. And then anger and pain and wounds begin to build, and then we start to choose sides. And that's why for the Catholic, the going to that font of grace we find in the sacraments is so important. Yes. To be able to be healed of those feelings of abandonment, rejection, mm-hmm. and uh, allow that detachment from what we feel we need can be found in our jobs to attaching it more appropriately to the need that can only be filled by Christ. Exactly right. So that in these areas, it doesn't be our work, our jobs essentially do not become our identity, that our identity is always rooted in the fact that we are children of God first and foremost. And what we do is there is a value, but that is not who we are. That's an extremely important point because one of the dangers of, of what we've been talking about is well, when I talk about the objective and subjective natures of work is to think that that um, what I'm saying is that the subjective nature, the fact that our work is an extension of ourselves means that we are our work. Mm-hmm. And that's not what the church is saying. It's certainly not what I'm saying. The objective nature of work is still what it is. The work is what it is, right? How we graded a paper or how we turned the screw or how we fixed that or whatever it was it was. If we did it poorly, right, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're bad people or we've lost our human dignity, right, or that God loves us less. Rather, it's opportunity for us to receive a criticism or correction or whatever it might be so that we might do a better job and so we might understand how how it might feel, right, to fail because that's part of human experience. It's an opportunity to give that up, right, and and to to match it with the suffering of Christ on the cross because it always has to go back 
go always go back to him. I'll paraphrase my great patron, St. Teresa of Avila, who would say that, praise God for those who will affirm you, but praise him even more for those who criticize you. Right. Because from their critiquing, which is really what the word criticism comes kind of from a critiquing, yes. you can look and see areas in which they may have a legitimate point and you may need improvement. Precisely right. And we need that improvement because as the compendium says, work is, is an obligation. We have one of the beautiful things that it says here is that uh, we, we, we labor and we work because we're part of this community, this, this social dimension. Uh, i just quote the one line from paragraph 274. We are heirs of the work of generations and at the same time shapers of the future of all who live after us. You know, Chesterton has that great phrase about tradition being the democracy of the dead, that, that you know we are um, benefiting from the labor of others. And so when we labor, we're passing on a patrimony to, to our children and to those who live in the future. So we better get it right. And so criticism then is an opportunity for us to get it right and to do the best for the common good in the future and now and for the future. Uh, the compendium is going to go on and talk about the big question, right? The whole reason the social doctrine got started in the first place is because of this tension started in the 19th century between labor and capital. So the things, the stuff, the money, the, the buildings, the things that make labor possible, the factory, right, and the labor itself. And in our capitalist system, it gives away, right, the, the emphasis right there. In capitalism, we, we put capital at the fore. Uh, we put the stuff, the things of businesses at the fore and not labor. And that's part of the problem of capitalism. We have talked about how it looked in 19th century England, but how horrifically it looked in 19th century America, especially yeah. in the South. And the scars that we still suffer from that mindset mm. because of slavery, yes. because labor was quite literally considered capital. Right. And that's the problem. So um, just to put it in, in, in a different way, if the way we have viewed labor in the West has been as another line item on a sheet that, that goes towards overhead. It's a, it's a cost. It's a commodity. It's something to be traded like chattel, like people are still slaves. In fact, actually, uh, Hellard Belloc, the great French-English historian, wrote a wonderful book called The Servile State, where he talks about, and, and he and Chesterton and others talked about this, where, where um, the capitalist system can help create a kind of slavery uh, because I'm, I'm forced to labor and uh, negotiate for my labor on terms that are not equal. And so I end up becoming a servant rather than a, a, a co-worker rather than a co-creationist with, with you, co-creator with you, my manager. And so what Lilo Thirteenth then ushers into uh, with the social teaching is uh, this understanding that uh, labor, because it's connected to the fundamental dignity of the human see how the principles go back here? Because mm -hmm. labor is connected to the human person, labor has to take precedence over things. Labor has to take precedence over capital. It is easier to experience when and to appreciate when you're on a line like my father was as a blue-collar worker working in a factory and there was that hierarchy and you mm. could see the supervisor who oversaw the team who worked in this particular part of the manufacturing plant. Mm -hmm. It's not as easy to see and appreciate and live out if you're a commodities trader mm. or you're someone who is a venture capitalist mm -hmm. who purchased those companies and trade in those trades could potentially have ramifications for those who are working in, in those venues. Exactly. And this is 
This goes back when we were talking about the principles of the social teaching of the church. We talked about one of the principles that comes from subsidiarity is participation. And subsidiarity, we, we talk about it a lot when it comes to government and politics, right? The principle is that you want to address the, uh, a particular social problem at the local level as much as possible so that higher levels of authority, like in America, the federal government, let's say, doesn't necessarily have to come in and manage local issues. And, and there are various reasons for that, and you can go and listen to that episode prior. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of the uh, corollary of subsidiarity is participation. It requires that everybody sort of participate. So what the church encourages that we use subsidiarity in the business as well, in the business world, so that when uh, decisions get made that affect people, right, that those people aren't treated as simply as having to go along with the, the decisions that are made higher up, that they have some sort of say. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that every business decision has to be democracy. That I've been in managerial situations where that can get really in the way of any kind of efficient work. But it does mean that, that the individual, the labor, has to feel as though they have some voice, they have some say, and have some participation in some of the decisions that, that get made, and or they have some participation in the profits. I mean, Pius Twelfth and Chesterton are both going to say, you know, like E.F. Schumacher, that small is beautiful, that when you have laborers who participate in the profits of the company or participate in the decisions that are made of the company, that's a, a wonderful uh, example of subsidiarity and participation. And so we have to remember that in capitalism as well, that, that um, our laborers should have a, a, a say in how things are, are, are apart in the profits that are made. I would imagine a very difficult minefield for those Catholic businessmen and women mm-hmm. who are in those areas and of doing very legitimate work yeah. of in the economy, in those higher levels of making those type of corporate decisions, even more so that they be anchored in those sacramental graces that flow from their encounter with Christ that they receive from the church. Because that what they're doing has huge ramifications potentially for so many lives. And that's a, a really important point. I, again, to sort of bring this back to the spirituality and, and, and the practical aspects of it. I mean, if you find yourself, if, even if you're a laborer, and by a business leader, you can be a CEO, but you can also be just a manager of a team. You can be a shift manager, whatever it is, oversee one or two people, but whatever it might be, you're in a position where you, you, you really are overseeing other people's lives and, and you're trying to live in collaboration, which is why being a Eucharistic people is so very important. I mean, the, you know, I talked before in the last episode about gratuitousness. This Holy, the Holy Father, John Benedict XVI, is talking about having a sense of thankfulness. Well, as Catholics, we're a Eucharistic people. Eucharist means thanksgiving. And so by connecting yourself to the sacraments, especially the Holy Eucharist, you begin to build in yourself a habit, a connection with Christ that allows you to see and be a thanksgiving person in the workplace so you can treat people with the greatest and fullest dignity they require. Ultimately, you'll have to have a deep appreciation of what true success is. Exactly. Going back to a Christmas carol, I'm, the images of, in the end, would you rather be a fizzywig or would you rather be a Scrooge? <laughs> There's a universal understanding, no matter where you are, when you read that story or you hear the tale, mm-hmm. there's this, the heart desires to be the fizzy wig. Yes. It wants to be, but are you actually living that out? And that, that can go in the workplace or in the family, too. There's labor in the family. Uh, as parents, those who are listening, you are managers of, of, your, of your home workplace. So how do you, how do you manage your children? Um, in the labor that they're supposed to be doing for the sake of the family. 
Do you encourage them in that labor? And are you more of a Scrooge or more of a Fezziwig at home uh, to your children? That's something to think about as well. What is success then? What is the measure of success, Omar? The measure of success is being happy with Christ in heaven. I mean, that's sanctity. Uh, the common good, which the social teaching is one of the fundamental principles of the, of the social teaching, the common good is defined, as we've said before, as as creating the, the condition in society so that we can become saints more fully and more easily. So if that's the measure, sanctity, um, are you creating in your home, in your workplace, you're contributing, despite whatever else anybody else might do, but are you contributing to a situation where people can pursue sanctity, see sanctity, experience sanctity in you, in the example that you give, that's, that's, that's success. Really then, it's for the Christian man or woman, it's not how successful we are that should be our goal. It's how holy we become. Precisely right. That's a tough one. That's a that's tough a, one. I mean, that's a tough thing to ask people to shift that paradigm. Holiness is something that's like a secondary in most of our lives, isn't it? And it's, uh, holiness is considered something for somebody else oftentimes. Uh, Dorothy Day, who we both love, has mm-hmm. that great line that sort of puts people off. She says, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed so easily. And what would she mean by that, I think, is is that we have a habit of assuming that if somebody's a saint, well, these are these creatures created by God and put on earth right, to remind us that he's there, but I'm certainly not called to be a saint. That's not the case. In fact, St. Francis de Sales is going to say that's a heresy. You were called to be a saint and holy in the workplace, in where you're at right now. He actually says this. He says you can be a saint in the workshop, mechanics workshop, in the soldier's guardroom, in the prince's court. So even politicians can be holy. This is what we're called to be. And the constant driver of society to make more, to do more, to, to, to make idols, really, of our, of our work, we have to fight against consciously. Because it's so easy in our culture to unconsciously fall into that trap. Mm. Thank you so much, Omar. You're welcome. You've been listening to Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts, I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez.